All right. Good morning. Good to see you here this morning, everyone. And uh, please open up your copy of God's Word this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 22. Today we come to the next text in our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which, as those of you who are familiar with what we've been doing here at Harbin's, is a verse-by-verse walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Now, last week we were in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, but because this is a chronological study, a chronological look at the life of Jesus, we jumped over to Matthew, which seems to cover a few events that Luke in his wisdom, as God inspired him to write his gospel, chose to skip over or not necessarily highlight in his narrative. So as we harmonize the gospel accounts chronologically, we're moving over to Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew for a little while. Now, part of the beauty and the genius of there being four gospels written by four unique authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, is they give us a fuller picture of Jesus' ministry, And beyond that, each gospel writer approaches his narrative with a unique focus so that when they're all combined, we get a more robust picture of the glorious implications of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. The result being that there's not a human on the planet to whom the gospel narratives do not speak. We can be confident that we have in the gospels an accurate, spirit-inspired, infallible record of all the truth about the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus that the Spirit wanted us to have. And... All that we need to know in order to have eternal life and to be united to Christ and to know God. So with that in mind, let us stand this morning as we read this text. Let us read it with reverence and with awe. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22, reading all the way through verse 37. And again, we stand because we want to honor the infallible and errant word of God. Verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. But if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you this morning for your word. It is in your word where we place all of our hope this morning. So, Father, I pray that you bless my sermon only to the extent that it is in line with your word. Lord, keep me from error. Keep me from speculation. And so, Father, this morning I pray also for all of us here as we hear your word, as we think about it being taught and it being examined, Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear. But we know without having our ears opened by your Holy Spirit, we are unable to hear. We don't want to hear. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you do a work in all of our hearts. Enable us to hear this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. I have with me a toy. When I was growing up, you know, I had some of these, probably many of you did as well, some of these toys. What do I have here in, in my hand? What are these little guys? These are, Jesse? Toy soldiers. Toy army men. How many of you guys played with toy soldiers and army men when you were growing up or still play with them today? All right? You can raise your hand. Okay? Several of you in here. Yeah, I was actually pleasantly surprised that they actually still sell these at Walmart. Okay? But you got these little toy soldiers. I was also surprised that the little... The molds, I guess, that they use for these guys hasn't changed in like 80 years. It's the same poses, the exact same guys. The little dude with the, with the uh, you know, binoculars pointing in one direction. Same dude, right? It looks exactly the same. Now, the reason that boys in particular like to play with toy soldiers is that in each one of our hearts, we know that there is a great battle going on. And in each one of our hearts, we know that or at least we desire, that the good people win the battle. And so we like to imagine being on the right side of wars and conflicts. And so we get out toys like this, and we we play with little toy figures, and we we imagine these great wars going on, and we enjoy playing these great wars. Or we enjoy watching movies that deal with great conflicts. Even, you guys know I'm a Star Wars fan, and there's a great war going on in Star Wars. And the new trailer came out this weekend. Wasn't it awesome? But anyway... Um, so you, you enjoy these stories because they're reflecting something real that's going on. Something that can't even be seen. A cosmic battle that resonates in our heart even though we can't see it with our eyes that's happening. We know there's evil in the world. And we know that, there, that the world's not functioning as it should. And we're all hoping for some hero that will save the day and wipe out the enemy. Now... I'm going to grab a handful of these little um, guys here. We've got two colors. We've got the little gray ones and the green ones. And, and I'm going to give it to the first person that can tell me. There was a war that was called the War to End All Wars. Does anyone know which war that was? The War to End All Wars. I, I saw Austin's hand first. Good. World War I. So here you go. Enjoy your toy soldiers. All right. I've got to give you the same number of gray that you have of green. There you go. All right. Enjoy them. All right. That's right. World War I. A lot of people think it was World War II when you hear that phrase. But it was World War I. And uh, it was such a terrible conflict. Um, does anybody know how many people died in World War I? 
it was, it was about 17 million people that died in World War I. And it was the worst conflict in history up to that point. And people thought, this is the war to end all wars. Only for a couple of decades later, there to be another war. And if that was the war to end all wars, well, then World War II, which took somewhere between 65 and 85 million lives, had to be the war to end all wars, right? But since then, we've had war after war after war. Because war is not a beautiful thing. Even though we play toy soldiers and we like to play and imagine war and watch war movies and watch movies that deal with Star Wars and different battles and things that go on, war is a terrible thing. And the fact of the matter is that that war was mislabeled. It wasn't the war to end all wars. But there is a war to end all wars. It's the only true war that will end all wars. It's a war that's reflected in the text that we looked at today. It's the greatest war in human history. It's the deadliest war in human history. It's lasted from nearly the beginning of time and it will last until the end of the ages. Its scope is more than global. It's actually cosmic in nature. It encompasses all of creation. It is a cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we dig into today's text. So I'm going to jump right into your points this morning. And the first one I want you to see is that there is, there is a cosmic war going on between two kingdoms. There is a cosmic war going on between two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so just as with the toy soldiers, that's why I wanted to make sure Austin had a little bit of both colors here. There are two kingdoms represented with those little toy soldiers, and there are two kingdoms represented in today's text. The kingdom of God, as I've already mentioned, and the kingdom of Satan. And in the opening words here, we see Jesus taking the fight to the enemy. Verse 22, Then a demon-possessed or demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So when Jesus casts out this demon, he performs a mighty and powerful miracle. For this man was doubly debilitated. He was blind and he was mute. And both of these disabilities were apparently the result, the fruit, of some sort of demonic possession or oppression in his life. It seemed that the demonic activity, as we read the scriptures and we read the gospels, it seems like the demonic activity was particularly strong during Jesus' earthly ministry, which makes sense because the Bible makes it very clear that the demons knew who Jesus was. They knew who he was. They know who he is. And he was the promised king. He was the one promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He was the one that was promised who was going to come and win that final battle and crush the head of the serpent. So it's no surprise at all that once Jesus is on the scene, Satan steps up his work the demonic activity increases during Jesus' earthly ministry. But of course, Jesus can't be stopped. He's casting out, in this text here today, yet another demon. And he had done this many times before. And so it says here the people were amazed. Now the word amazed here is a strong word that could also easily be translated shocked or even dumbfounded. That's how the people were reacting to Jesus' miracle here. They had never seen spiritual power like this on display in Jesus. 
everyone watching, everyone seeing this happen, had to come to a conclusion about who this man was that was doing these type of things. Everyone watching had to come to a conclusion, who is this man who is doing such powerful deeds? And we see the people come to two conclusions, two different conclusions. And in those two conclusions, we actually see the two kingdoms that are at war. Verse 23, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Some of the people saw the power on display and asked, can this be the son of David? Or literally, this cannot be the son of David, can it? The title, of course, and you probably know this, Son of David, is a messianic title. It pointed to the expectation that God would restore his kingdom through the line of David as it had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And the Jews expected the Messiah, that he would come with powerful miracles. But, but they were really dumbfounded as they see Jesus here. They expected a more regal Messiah, a more militaristic Messiah. Not a carpenter surrounded by a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. This cannot be the son of David, can it? Was their response. The power on display should have left all their questions answered. But the Pharisees decided that they would answer that question for everybody. They said that he did these things by the power of Beelzebul. Now, what is this Beelzebul? This is a title or an adaptation. It's a, it's a title that is an adaptation of the Hebrew phrase Baal Zebul, which translated, which means Baal the prince. And you know Baal in the Old Testament. He was the Canaanite god of fertility. So this title was synonymous with Satan. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus basically of sorcery here. They were accusing him of calling upon Satan, calling upon the demonic to defeat the demonic. The Pharisees were blind to the fact that it was they, not Jesus, who were actually on the side of Beelzebul. But the Pharisees didn't understand that they, they should have seen that Jesus was not practicing these things through the power of Satan, but instead that the power of God was on display. Now, the Pharisees did understand something, though, that we need to understand, that there is a great cosmic spiritual battle going on. Our enemy, the devil, is conducting spiritual warfare, and he was at work even in these Pharisees as they opposed Jesus. Now, I want you to notice how the enemy operates in a spiritual battle. In a spiritual war. Because what's happening here, Jesus is casting out a demon, yes. But there's also a spiritual battle going on here as these Pharisees oppose Jesus. There's spiritual warfare going on. And I want you to see how the enemy works in spiritual warfare. Let's look at what the text says right before Jesus responds to the Pharisees and their foolish assertion. Verse 25, he says this. Knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. He then said to them what he said to them. Knowing their thoughts, the main front of spiritual warfare is the mind. Jesus knew what kind of minds they had. He discerned the warped thinking that was the fruit of their warped hearts. So we are not surprised to read this regarding spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10.4. It says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Your mind, the application for us is that our minds 
are ground zero for spiritual warfare. Satan corrupts man's thinking and he, and he strives to corrupt Christian thinking as well. Romans 12, 2, that's why Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The people of this world, the people who remain under the reign of Satan have minds that are darkened, blinded, foolish, irrational, and totally illogical. Romans 1 verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, this world claims to be wise, but in reality simply exhibits foolishness. Spiritual warfare is evident when those in the world belittle God's work and belittle God's people as narrow-minded and stupid, all the while they hold hypocritical, illogical, and unnatural worldviews. It's on display. The foolishness of man's thinking is on display all the time when we're faced with spiritual warfare. And what we see next with the Pharisees, we see that they are irrational and illogical as they put forth a totally nonsensical theory as to why Jesus was able to accomplish this work. So Jesus exposes their folly. Verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Their theory held no water. It made no sense. It's not uncommon for sinful men who cannot ignore the evidence of God's work and cannot explain it away to then turn to mockery. The foolish mind turns to mockery when the mind can't explain the works of God. So Jesus exposes their folly and he also exposes their hypocrisy. Verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Now, this is an interesting text here. There's not a whole lot of evidence that the Jews in first century Judaism did a lot of exorcisms. There's a few uh, passages in Josephus that, that, that give us an indication that there were attempted exorcisms. And then we have a very interesting passage in Acts chapter 19 verse 14 and following, where there's these seven sons of, of a high priest named Sceva. Do you remember that passage? And they go in and they try to cast out a demon and the demon overpowers them, whoops them so bad that it says that they ran away naked. Okay, he knocked the clothes off of them. And so we have no evidence that there were ever any successful exorcisms in early, in first century Judaism. But apparently there were some attempts. I think Matthew 12, verse 43, if you jump down in the text a little bit today, is directly tied to today's text. And I think it reflects the type of ineffective exorcisms that the Jews and some of the followers of the Pharisees tried to perform. So in verse 43, we read this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. He's talking about this generation, these, these Jews who, they practice some sort of exorcism. And I think this text tells us what type of exorcism it was. Something that was totally ineffective and actually left people in a worse state in the end than they were at the beginning. Remember Mary Magdalene that we looked at last week in last week's text? How many demons had Jesus freed her of? Seven. Perhaps she had experienced a Jewish exorcism prior to that. Who knows? But what we do know is that Jesus is condemning them for their hypocrisy. Now, when Jesus performs exorcisms, on the other hand, 
They were not weak. They were not ineffective. They were not temporary. But they were powerful demonstrations of his might and his authority as the high king of heaven. What Jesus was doing was clear evidence that the king was now here and that the kingdom of God was breaking in. Matter of fact, this was clear evidence that Satan's days were numbered. For the next thing I want us to see this morning is this, that the outcome, the outcome of the war is already determined. The outcome of this this spiritual war has already been determined. Jesus says such in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The conclusion was simple. God's kingdom was breaking in and winning. The evidence was that the king was here and his kingdom had been inaugurated. Jesus, through all of his mighty works, was continuing to demonstrate and validate his kingship. His kingship over nature. His kingship over sickness. His kingship even over death. His kingship over sin. His kingship over demons and even over Satan. The king had come and the father was putting all things under his feet. The evidence was clear. Satan's defeat was imminent. Imminent. There was no question. Satan was going to lose. Now when I played soccer, uh, our team, I've told you this before, wasn't really great in in, in college. Okay? Um, The first year we ever went to the playoffs, though, we did make the playoffs. That's because there were four teams Five teams in our division and the top four went to the playoffs. All right, so the first year we made the playoffs, which means the first year we didn't come in fifth, the team we were playing was the top team, seeded team, which was Midwestern State um, in Wichita, Texas. And um, I remember the first year we went to the playoffs and we knew we were going to be playing Wichita State. And we were defeated before we ever went into that game. I remember sitting in the locker room and everybody just sitting there staring at the ground and it wasn't very, not much confidence. Um, our coach wasn't giving us much confidence. It was kind of sad. The reason being is we'd already played Midwestern State earlier that year. You see, earlier that year we played Midwestern State and we lost. And this is not American football. This is soccer. We lost 16 to nothing. That's not good. That is really, really bad in, in soccer. And so we had to play Midwestern State again. Hey, you know what? We only lost 10 nothing in the playoffs. So it was, it was an improvement, right? But we went into the game defeated. We'd already seen the evidence. This team was powerful. This team had cleaned our clock before. We didn't have a shot. And so I can only imagine the demonic, the demons, they know who Jesus is. Matter of fact, Jesus is hard. We've seen this already in our study. He's already told them multiple occasions, be quiet. Don't tell anybody who I am. They know who he is. He's not struggling. He's not trying to have some sort of battle, trying to exercise these demons. He just says, be gone, and they're gone. The high king of heaven is here, so the, the handwriting is on the wall. Everyone knows, all the demons at least, know what's coming. And so... The outcome of the war was already determined. The kingdom of God in the person of the Son had come upon them. Satan's defeat was sure, and Jesus was binding him, is what we read in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus, with every miracle and every word he spoke, was binding Satan. He was defeating him. And friends, we know at the cross, Satan was once and for all defeated. We read in 
Colossians 2.15, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. So the strong man here, Satan, has been defeated. He is a defeated foe. You may say, well, how so? How is it that Satan is defeated? Because doesn't the Bible say that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? 1 Peter 5.8. And there's other texts similar to that. Yes, but the reason, the reason Satan thrashes so violently, especially against the church, is that the death blow has already been dealt and his days are numbered. Revelation makes it very clear that he's thrashing against the church because he knows his days are short. So nothing can stop the sun. Satan has been defeated, but he's not yet been destroyed. The mortal wound from the heel of the sun has been administered, but the slimy snake is still squirming. Another story, in when, another time when I lived in Ecuador, I got the opportunity to go to the Galapagos Islands. And I've told you before, when you're in the Galapagos, you can't touch any of the animals or you get kicked out of the park. Except fish. We were allowed to go out and go fishing one day. And it was, it was a very interesting experience. I, I'm not a good fisherman, but I went with other guys, and we were catching our dinner for that night, and there was this Ecuadorian guide with us, and he was catching all these amazing, colorful fish. I know it's kind of a shame that we were eating them, but they were beautiful fish. So he'd pull these fish out, these tropical fish, and, and he'd tell us what they were. And, we, and but one, then he caught something that was giving him a lot of pull, and it was really hard. And he pulls in this long, silver-looking fish that had these gigantic teeth on the front of it. He pulled in a barracuda. Have you ever seen a picture of a barracuda? He pulls in this barracuda and he brings this thing in into the boat there and uh, that thing is scary looking with these gigantic sharp teeth. And he had it hooked it, he hooked it up with all the other fish there and, and we're all sitting there in the boat staring at this scary looking barracuda and one of the guys kind of gets close to it and that thing just starts going with its teeth. Now its days are numbered. That thing is is dying. It's dead. It's, it's been pulled out of the water. But it's still thrashing. And its teeth were going. And the guy said, Cuidado! No la tocas! Don't touch the fish! Okay? Stupid gringo, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't touch the barracuda! And so, yes, Satan's still thrashing around and he's, he's quite a danger. <clears throat> but he is a defeated foe. The kingdom of Jesus is advancing, and it's unstoppable. We prayed this morning for persecuted Christians that that are being slaughtered by ISIS. ISIS can't stop the kingdom of heaven. Anti-Christian activism can't stop the kingdom of heaven. The new atheists can't stop the kingdom of heaven. False teachers can't stop the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees couldn't stop the kingdom of heaven. Herod couldn't stop the kingdom of heaven. Pilate couldn't stop the kingdom of heaven. Demons couldn't stop... And can't stop the kingdom of heaven. Satan can't stop the kingdom of heaven. Death can't stop the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Jesus, once he binds the strong man, I love the text here. Once he binds the strong man, he begins plundering. He's taking trophies that were previously the devil's and making them his own. Trophies like this demon-possessed man at the beginning of today's text. Trophies like Mary Magdalene that we read of last week. Or like Matthew, the tax collector who wrote this gospel. 
or like the Apostle Paul, or like you and I in here who are Christians. We were formerly in Satan's kingdom, and then Jesus powerfully bound the strong man whom we willfully served, and he has revived us and rescued us and now made us trophies of grace. He has plundered the strong man's house. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, he's walking the, the streets of different Galilean towns, plundering Satan's trophy cabinet, one soul at a time. And we have been called to do the same. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, the strong man has been plundered. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go plunder. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are called to now go and plunder the enemy's house because the strong man has been bound. Go. Go reclaim what belongs to the king. Be used of God to rescue people out of one kingdom and into another. Remember, there are only two kingdoms. You are either in one or the other. There are only two kingdoms. And so that's my next point this morning. There is no neutrality in this war. Jesus does not mince words in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He leaves no doubt that there's no neutrality in this war. You are either in the kingdom of heaven or you are in the kingdom of Satan. There are only two soldiers in our little can of toy soldiers. Green and gray. Jesus doesn't offer a third option. There is no Switzerland in this battle. And you serve whatever kingdom you're in. Those who are part of Jesus' kingdom, they gather. And those who are in Satan's kingdom do the work of Satan by scattering. What does that mean? Well, this text is about the end of the age. In the Old Testament, they prophesied that God would act as a harvester at the end of the age to gather his people to himself while casting out those who do not belong to him. This word scatter, this word scatter had rich meaning to the Jews. Okay, because... Part of the covenant that God made with the Jews was that if they did not keep their covenant, he would do what? He would scatter them among the nations. And that's what the word scatter would have brought to their mind. The word means lostness, forsakenness, separation from God and from his blessings. So those in God's kingdom work with him in the gathering work of reaching souls for Christ. But those who are in Satan's kingdom work with him in the scattering work of propagating lostness and rebellion. So the question this morning is, which one are you in? And that leads us to the next terrifying verse, verse 31. Therefore, in light of everything Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture, at least the concept of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, also called the unpardonable sin. But what is it exactly? What is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, the word blasphemy means to slander, to curse, or to have defiant irreverence toward. 
So what type of blasphemy becomes unforgivable? Well, the context is key, as always. What we have here in today's account is is these Pharisees blaspheming the Spirit of God by attributing the very clear and powerful work of the Spirit to Satan. What they are doing was rejecting the very clear evidence put forth by God's Spirit showing that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. This blasphemy was, therefore, wide-eyed, willful rejection of Jesus despite the very clear evidence from the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work, is to point to the Son, to exalt the Son. So Jesus says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Why wouldn't a word against the Son of Man be deserving of the same condemnation? Well, we have to remember there is a veiling of Jesus' divinity in the flesh. And that is why Jesus used the designation here, Son of Man, which is the title that emphasized his human nature. Those who ignorantly failed to see the true nature of Jesus were sinning in their blindness, but not a willful, high-handed sin of rejecting the very clear evidence put forth by the Holy Spirit. So remember Jesus' words at the cross? Jesus says, Luke 23, 24, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So there is a type of sinning against God and against, ultimately against the Son, but against the Spirit's evidence of the Son that is not done in some sort of ignorance. And I'm not saying innocence, but ignorance. Those aren't the same thing, by the way. But it's done in a high-handed way. You know the power of God. You know what God has done. And instead, you willfully, wide-eyed, push against the Holy Spirit's work. So let me take you to 1 Timothy to give you an example of the difference between high-handed, willful rejection of God's truth and ignorant, sinful rebellion against God. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So Paul had blasphemed God. God had Paul had opposed the church. Paul had opposed what Christ was doing. And then Paul says this to Timothy. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now again, ignorance isn't the same thing as innocence. Paul was still guilty of all the sin he was committing. But he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, that serves as an example to all of us that God saves the worst of sinners. And how does he save the worst of sinners? Continues, verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul had been forgiven. The grace of God had been given to him. He put his faith in Christ alone. And he was saved. He was changed. But then I want to read verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There's that spiritual warfare. Verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. Listen to this. By rejecting this, Some have made shipwreck of their faith. 
among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So there seems to be in the second half of this passage a different type of sin, a sin that tastes the goodness of faith, experiences the evidences of truth, and then walks away from it. What we see here, if it's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it certainly is close. And although I think a true Christian can't commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I do think that there are many who are Christians, who say they are Christians, who think they are Christians, but are not really Christians who do commit this sin. I think that that's what's happening in the terrifying warning passages of Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27. We don't have time to go to them today. But it's a very dangerous thing to have tasted the Spirit's work to have witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, to even have proclaimed the Spirit's presence, to have read the Spirit's words. These are words from the Holy Spirit. And to have celebrated the greatest feat that the Holy Spirit ever accomplished, which was the resurrection of the Son. It's a dangerous thing to do all those things and then turn your back on the King. It's a dangerous thing to be in the church, but not really in the church. But in the context here, Matthew, if I'll remind you, he's writing his gospel to Jewish listeners. And in the Jewish context, what he's saying is something like this, Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So in essence, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willful, wide-eyed unbelief and rejection of the Holy Spirit's clear revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know when someone has crossed that line. But the Bible makes it very clear there is a line. There is a line. So if you're worried this morning that you've committed the unpardonable sin, well, the very fact that you're worried about it testifies that you haven't committed it. For those who have, number one, have consciously, willfully rejected Jesus. Therefore, number two, they don't care. They don't care. They don't even believe it. They don't believe in Christ, so they don't care. They're not losing any sleep over it. I don't think these Pharisees went home and lost sleep over Jesus' words that night. So I'm not so worried about the person who struggles with whether or not he or she has committed the unpardonable sin. I'm not worried about your spiritual state. What I am worried about is the person who doesn't care. I'm worried about the person who is ambivalent, has a careless attitude, and has convinced himself that all this is just baloney. I'm worried about the lukewarm, apathetic person who claims to be a Christian. That's what I'm worried about. The person who shows no evidence of any true commitment or belief in the words of Jesus. I'm worried about the one who thinks he can remain neutral in this cosmic war. That's the one I'm worried about. I'm worried about the people who honor Jesus with their lips while their hearts are far from him. As Matthew tells us, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 15 verse 8. You see, ultimately it's all about the heart. So my final point this morning is simply this. The heart determines which kingdom you are in. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. The Bible consistently teaches us that we need radical transformation because we were born in sin and with a sinful nature. We were all born in rebellion against God. We were born as bad trees. And without internal transformation, we will only bear bad fruit. Even the things that we consider to be good, ultimately, unless we've been transformed by God's Spirit, are bad. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We've all become like that because we were all born like that. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So because we are diseased trees, we can only produce diseased fruit. I read a story a while back of a man who had a, an orchard. It was up in Michigan somewhere. His orchard, I don't know what fruit it was, but his orchard got diseased. The trees were diseased. They were only producing bad fruit. So he cut down the trees, and he went back, and he put new trees in. But those trees grew up and had bad fruit. They were diseased as well. And finally, some expert came in, and they had to go in and actually plow his whole field, completely transform the whole field, dug seven inches deep, and just wiped the whole thing out. And he put a whole new type of tree in there, and those trees finally produced good fruit. No one can walk up to a diseased tree and just make it all of a sudden be healthy. And so, too, the human heart. The human heart is diseased and needs radical transformation. Verse 34, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, in other words, you children of Satan, how can you speak good when you are evil? Evil words flow from an evil nature. And by the way, any words that are not flowing from the Holy Spirit out of our mouth are sinful words and therefore are evil in their nature. We always act according to our nature, which means we act according to the condition of our heart. It says here, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Without supernatural intervention, the heart will only produce diseased speech. Notice the focus on speech and on words in today's text. Words, this this text talks about words at the very beginning. Words against the Holy Spirit. And you'll be justified by your words. Words, words, words. Speech, speech, speech. But we will miss the point in this text if we think that this text is all about just cleaning up our language. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is talking about words because words reveal something. They reveal the heart. The reason Jesus is talking so much about words is he wants us to see the heart. Words don't save you and words don't damn you. A dead heart damns you and a renewed heart is necessary in order to be saved. So words function like a diagnostic tool that reveals the heart. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth bad. The good person, the person in God's kingdom, acts and speaks differently because he treasures Christ above all things. His heart has been transformed. His heart now treasures Christ and is reflected in his words. But that only comes, that only comes after a transformational work has been done in the heart. All men are born with dead hearts. All men are born into the enemy camp. And God loves to take dead hearts and make them alive and transfer people from the enemy camp into his camp. And so a new heart is needed. So Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's also referred to as new birth, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it was referred to as a new creation. If anyone is in new Christ, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New birth, new creation, regeneration, a new heart. It's all the same thing. It's God changing us from bad trees into good trees. And in the end, it's all that matters. Verse 36. 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. But by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. This does not mean that our words in and of themselves make us good or bad. In the context, we clearly understand that the words we speak are the evidence. They are the evidence of what type of heart we have. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Your words reveal your heart, and your heart reflects your allegiances. So I want to finish with this passage this morning. Romans 10. Talking about our words reflecting our heart. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Spirit says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question for you this morning is... What kingdom are you in? There are two colors in this army bucket of army men. What color are you wearing this morning? Are you wearing the colors of the kingdom of God? Are you wearing the colors of the kingdom of Satan? Again, there is no neutrality. What do your words and your actions reflect? What does it tell everyone else? How do you live your life? Do you live it in some sort of false neutrality? thinking that you can just go about life however you want to go about life? Friends, that is the delusion. Are you here this morning saying that you're a Christian, but there's scant evidence in what you say and in what you do? Are you here this morning in open rebellion? I beg you not to resist the Holy Spirit this morning, but throw down your weapons, throw down your arms, and turn to King Jesus for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And if you are a Christian this morning, if you're actually in the king's army, are you engaged in the battle? Does your life reflect someone who's understanding that my task is to gather, to plunder the enemy's trophy cabinet? The gospel should be going out of my mouth. It should be going out of my home and out of my children. This should be a lifestyle that reflects what camp I'm in. Are you doing the work that Jesus has called us to do? I want to remind us that the victory is sure. The enemy is defeated. But let us not confuse who the combatants are. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're all involved in a cosmic war, whether we realize it or not. The question is, are you on Jesus' side or are you on Satan's? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the amazing transformative work that you've done in the hearts of those in this room here today who are believers. And Father, we believe that all those who are true believers, that that truth will be reflected in words, in actions, in decisions, in the way we handle our home, the way we communicate with coworkers, the choices we make in entertainment, 
the decisions we make with our money. And on and on and on. In all of those decisions, from the way we talk to our children to what we put into our mind, should be done for the purpose of, of spreading the kingdom. So, Father, I pray this morning that those of us in here who are true believers, that we would understand that, that we have been called to gather, to plunder. And we can only do it because Jesus has won. And therefore, when we share the gospel with someone, it's always accomplishing its purpose. It, it, is, it is opening some hearts. It is, it is awakening some hearts. That gospel message, not us, but your gospel, Father, opens some hearts. But there's other hearts, when they hear it, resist it, and those hearts are therefore hardened. So your work is being accomplished regardless. And so, God, we pray that you'd help us to be people that are faithful with our time, faithful with our resources. Help us live in a way that it shows that we are part of a cosmic war. Help us to have a wartime mentality. And, Lord, for those in here this morning that think that there's some neutral ground, oh, usually neutrality is simply a veil, a veil covering the true identity of the camp that they belong to, namely the camp of the enemy, the camp of rebellion. Oh, Father, help us to see this morning, help those in here who are not believers to see the condition of their own heart this morning. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a transforming work. And I pray that there would be none in this room, I hope there would be none in this room, who would openly, willfully, wide-eyed resist the Holy Spirit like the Pharisees did in today's text. So, Father, we pray and we ask now that you be with us in this time of response as we sing this closing song. We bring our offerings and our prayer requests. Lord, I pray that you bless this time of singing. And, Lord, as we go out of here, help us to go with a wartime mentality that we might gather for the kingdom, that we might plunder the enemy's trophy cabinet. So we ask all this in the precious name of our Savior, our victor, the one who has secured the victory, who has put Satan under his heel, who has administered the death blow, and who will one day bring in the kingdom in its final form, ushering in what was inaugurated in these verses here. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.